Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Gilbert Cruz, editor of the New York Times Book Review, and this is the Book Review Podcast. Happy New Year to you all. It's January 2024, and as always, I hope you use some of your downtime over the holidays to read something from our top 10 list, perhaps, or a book that's been sitting on a pile in your home waiting for just the right moment to crack open. I can tell you what I read over the holidays because I write down every book I finish in a little journal. I'm one of those people who likes to keep track of everything I read and everything I watch. In that way, and maybe only in that way, I'm much like this week's guest, who, to my mind, is one of the more famous practitioners of culture consumption logging. Every year, Steven Soderbergh, the incredibly prolific director, publishes on his site, Extension 765, a detailed day-by-day list of every book he's read, every movie and TV show he's watched, every play he's attended. I've read these lists for years. I've gotten great pleasure from them, and I wanted to have Stephen on to talk about the books. Let's turn to that conversation now. Stephen Soderbergh, welcome to the Book Review Podcast. Thanks for having me. Stephen, at least on your site, it goes back to 2009. You've been doing this list for quite a while why did you start? Why did you want the public to see this? Well, I was trying to draw attention to my T-shirt business. Okay. <laughs> and this seemed like the most obvious. Turned out didn't really move the needle very much. But it was, for me, just a, an exercise in creating a personal calendar of what was happening in my life during that period. So for me, it, it, it's really just become something, if I'm to look back on it, I can chart based on what I was looking at or reading that year, where I was, like where my head was, what I was doing work-wise. It's a, to me, a kind of low-impact, non-lethal way to orient my memory which I find as time goes on, and especially because of the pandemic, our sense of when things happened and what was happening to us has been completely distorted. I was uh, texting with a friend earlier, and this friend says, and I'm the same way, maybe you're the same way, it's often when you say, when did this movie come out or when did I see this movie, is attached to a year, is attached to a time, is attached to a moment. But once you have too many of those, you just have to start logging them down, especially for someone who is an intense cultural consumer, as it seems like you are. Or like a song. I would argue that songs have as strong or even a stronger sense of orientation for people of who they were when they heard that song. Books, I think, used to do that more than they do now, maybe. They used to be, at least when I was growing up, there would be a certain book that would kind of really dominate 
the cultural conversation for a period of time. And I don't say that I don't think that's the same as it is now as a diss, because I would say the same thing about movies. I don't think movies matter the same way today as they did when I was 17. But I still view reading books as a kind of singular experience. You can't do another thing while you're reading a book. You may have the, some people can read with music on. Mm -hmm. I can't. I really want the, all of the world available to my imagination when I'm reading somebody's words. But as time goes on, the number of experiences that are that distilled, I think, are decreasing. And I think that's why I value it so much. We were talking before. I think this is the most amount of books I've read in a year since I published the list. If my counter's right, you read something in the neighborhood in 2023 of, of 80 books, 80-ish books. So what that indicates to me is it was a very stressful year mm. because I read in order to calm down. I read as a form of meditation because of the fact that you can only do that one thing. And it's a thing that I'm not doing. It's a thing that somebody else is doing and I'm dipping into it. And so if that's the case, it means last year just required a lot of time where I was happy. Since 2017, when you released Logan Lucky, you've released at least one movie a year, every year. I think in 2019, maybe you released two movies. And you have a new movie premiering at Sundance this year, Presence. You worked on that last year, I imagine. But somehow, you still found time to read 80 books. It sounds like this is what you do in your downtime. But how do you find the time to read so many while still being so productive, while still working on a project? Well, the unfortunate side effect of that is that there are a lot of people who sent me things to read within the context of my day job that I have either agreed to read or am sort of legally bound to read, that I have like actual fiduciary <laughs> obligations here to read. And now they're going to find out like, why is it taking so long to read this stuff? <laughs> and it really is because if I'm reading books as a de-stressor, a screenplay, a script, or a, a show, or whatever, regardless of its context or source or what the situation is, represents work, which is a potential stressor. So I have a plan for this year to solve it. Okay. But I am managing my expectations about my ability to actually execute this plan. But at least now for the people affected. There's a reason why it takes me so long to read stuff that I've been sent. Do you want to put this plan out into the world so we could all hold you responsible? Or is that well, another stressor? Well, no. What I'm developing is a sort of very reasonable reward system <laughs> for every time I check one of these off the list. 
Now, I haven't decided what that is yet, but I've decided that sort of incentive program is what I need to solve this problem. So we'll check in next year and see how it went. Like <laughs> The most obvious thing is some sort of object or food item or something, but I'm, I want it to be a little less obvious. I want it to be something that accumulates over time, isn't necessarily a near-term dopamine hit, but that if you manage to do it over a long period of time, the payoff is like, you'll die. <laughs> this is real self-behavior modification, like self-psychology. I'm, I'm just trying to optimize a process. All right. We're, you know what? We're going to have to check in next year yeah. about how this yeah. all went. We should. So, so very quickly, just for my curiosity, the dates that you write on your, on your list are those, that those I assume are the dates when you finish the book. Exactly. Which means you're reading multiple books at once. Do you ever note books that you don't finish? Are you quitting books? No, you're correct. If it looks like there were a couple of titles on a certain day, it's because I was reading both of them and finished them both. I start things and stop. That that goes for almost anything. That goes for shows. That goes for movies. Plays, not so much. It's embarrassing. But if the writing is just clanking on my ear, then I have to stop. Like, I can't get past feeling like the writing is kind of hurting me. In the same way that if I watch a movie... Bad shots hurt my eyes. And I'm getting older, and how many more of these do I have? So, uh, in a 30? Who knows? There's a difference between something that starts and has the potential to kind of find its compass and something that you just know, like, I'm never going to be able to wrap my mind around this. Like, this is just not going to work for me. And I say that about things that I've made for people. I told people about The Laundromat, a film I made a couple of years ago. <laughs> I go, if you're unhappy in the first two minutes, just stop because it's not going to get any better. Like, this is what we're doing. And if you don't like this kind of self-referential direct direct like stop because that's what we're doing so I, I feel justified in in assessing if this is going to orient itself toward a place that i can embrace or kind of grab onto or if this is just not for me i feel like when it comes to books in particular people actually feel guilty about starting a book and stopping or not finishing it in a way that maybe they don't with other artistic. Well, idea. they shouldn't. They should only feel guilty if they stole it. If they bought it, they don't even have to pick it up. Forget about stopping after page 20. If you bought it, you supported an artist. So I'm just saying to everybody, if you paid for it, you get to do whatever you want to do. You've already fulfilled the part of the contract that the artist cares about, yeah. which is like, you paid. So I'm fine with that. Let's talk about some books. We're going to jump around a little, if that's okay. Well, I hope I can remember what we talk about, because one thing that I discovered young was 
as completely as immersed as I get in a book when I'm reading it, and it is total. Typically, when I'm done, it's gone. And I thought this was a defect in my brain until I read this book written by the famous and skilled Hollywood screenwriter Ben Hecht, A Child of the Century, which is his doorstop of a memoir. Fascinating, Mm -hmm. fascinating. He described the same thing. He was a voracious reader, but he described this weird thing where he goes, I would finish the book, would have enjoyed it more than anything I've ever enjoyed, and it would just vanish within days. And I'm like that a little bit. And as a corrective, I've started highlighting things that, if I'm reading something, that I think are memorable and putting them into a document so that I don't completely lose the experience. So that's a whole other project is compiling those highlights. I mean, that's essentially your own commonplace book, which is, I believe, what some people refer to these as. Our book critic, one of our book critics here, Dwight Garner, does that with quotes. He has tens of thousands maybe of quotes or passages from books that he's read over the years because in some way that's you want to refer to them, you want to go back to them, and maybe that's the only way to remember and have them all in one place. It is for me. Like, if I don't write it down, if it doesn't get memorialized, it's gone, and that's not... I think that's a normal reaction to a world in which we have so much information coming at us all the time. Well, this actually relates to one of the books you read, which was a book called How to Live, A Life of Montaigne by Sarah Bakewell. So for those listeners who don't know who Sarah Bakewell is, she is a writer who has written several books about philosophy, the history of philosophy, famous philosophers. She wrote a book called At the uh, Existentialist Cafe. This was about Jean-Paul Sartre, Camus, Simone de Beauvoir. And her first book, which, Stephen, you read this year, was How to Live of Life of Michel de Montaigne. This was the 16th century nobleman and essayist. It's a uh, He's a man who is considered to have created the the essay, the personal essay. And one of the chapters in the book, it's a book that gives you 20 answers to one question. And one of them was something to the effect of read a lot, don't worry about remembering it. That was literally one of the chapter headings. Well, first of all, you mispronounced Montaigne. So that was embarrassing. God, That's I just went look, to we several can, YouTube no, we videos. Can cut that out. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm embarrassed that it took me this long to get to him. I knew of him. There was a, a quote that he's known for that was actually in my quote document, has been for a long time, in reference to his overwhelming grief at the death of one of his close friends and somebody said wow dude why so (laughs) and he said because it was he because it was me and that was just like a beautifully resonant idea so but it wasn't until I read Sarah's book that I thought okay I really need to go back and check out who this guy is And as you say, when you go back and read these, and I'm not done, this is, this thing is massive because he weighed in on everything. 
and he weighed in on everything in a way that sounds like it was written tomorrow. And that's why it was so revolutionary. I mean, he really did create this whole idea of like writing an essay on procrastination, on education, on marriage. Like he started that and he started this whole idea of, well, I don't know. I've read a lot of stuff, talked to a lot of people. Here's where I come down on this subject. Nobody had ever really done this in the way that he did it. As a result, he became both famous and sort of infamous. He has a very fascinating essay where he talks about imagining what his cat is thinking about him as he plays with it. And the church found this really unacceptable. You're not allowed to anthropomorphize animals like that. And so for 150 years, they banned his essays. So I'm... Like I said, I'm a little embarrassed I'm coming to it late because it's such a gold mine. And then at the same time, it really reminds you that most of the basic ideas that we carry about how to behave, how to create a society, are not new. And what's new is certain pieces of technology, which throughout human history— we have placed a disproportionate importance on. We've always believed, we have always believed, while we're aware that we're not doing a great job of this thing, as witnessed by reading the front page of the New York (laughs) Times, we've always believed like, oh, there's going to be this one piece of tech and it's going to unlock the thing that makes us not do this right. And it's never happened. And I don't think it ever will. Um, But reading these essays really brings home this idea that our level of wisdom hasn't been much higher. Like this guy set a level for just pure wisdom about the world and the people in it. And I'm going, wow, that was a long time ago and I can't beat it. Very quickly, I want to ask, and hopefully readers will get some recommendations from this podcast from you, but where do you get your recommendations from? Are you reading reviews? Are you going to your local bookstore? Are you asking friends what they're reading? It's all of that. It really is all of that. I'm a subscriber to the paper. God bless you. Edition of the New York Times, so I'm, I'm looking what's in there, but I'm looking all over the place. I'm, I'm obviously... I have a phone that can connect me to anything. And I have friends, a group of friends, where we, you know, go back and forth. What did you read? So it's all of that. It's very serendipitous. Occasionally, it's work-related. It might There might be some homework aspect or aspirational aspect in the sense that, oh, I'm thinking about a film or a project on this subject. I should try and educate myself but it's very fluid and it's it is really fun to follow just a tributary like you can see in the list last year for a certain period of time the movie cleopatra from 1963 suddenly like landed on my head yeah and i had to read everything that was ever published about the making of this movie. And it turns out there's some stuff 
Why? I don't know. There, Yeah, you read two books in a row about the making of Cleopatra, and then I think you read a book about the real-life Cleopatra. Yeah. <laughs> you just you had to know it all. Well, let's not forget on that list is the 1934 Cecil B. DeMille version of Cleopatra with Claudette Colbert. And if there's anything that comes from this podcast, this needs to be seen. This thing is insane. It's insane. Okay. Yeah. It's insane. Say more. Oh, yeah. No, it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. But it's 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 just so entertaining. I mean, this was, in 1934, Cecil B. DeMille did not care about anything but whipping an audience into a frenzy. You know what I mean? Like That's all he thought about all day is like, how do I get people like totally excited and so there's a kind of spirit that comes with being that loose that's really infectious we'll be right back Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Welcome back. This is the Book Review Podcast, and I'm Gilbert Cruz. I'm here with director Steven Soderbergh, and we're talking about his year in reading. Now, Stephen, before we go into a couple of the other sort of reading jags and stretches that you went on in 2023, I have to ask, there's a personal question. There's a book on here that I believe costs something like two thousand dollars it is Toshin's making of the shining book is that the one that i am thinking about it is and when i got that email because i'm on their list that was a cat-like response and it's it's really stunning it's a really stunning achievement and i can only hope that at some point in the future they would consider putting out a version in which people can read the actual book that's in the center of this thing, the text, because it's an extraordinary document and something that I think any, certainly any creative person would view as an absolute 
necessity. It's not, you've just never read anything this granular about a filmmaker's process that defined granular. Right. And so I, I it, to me, it read like a thriller because I just couldn't wrap my mind around this process, but it was really satisfying. You are a filmmaker. I'm going to ask you one more question about a, a film book, and then we can talk about non, non-film books. But I'm asking because you're sitting in front of me, you're wearing a, a T-shirt, a black T-shirt, white type on the T-shirt. It says, a Mike Nichols film. And there's a book you read last year that I believe is coming out here in the States, at least, in a couple of weeks. And this was Cocktails with George and Martha. It's a book about the making of Mike Nichols's film, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. When I was doing my research, there was a full-length commentary online somewhere of you and Mike Nichols talking about the making of this movie. Could you tell us a little bit about this book? Because I think people who like Nichols or like Elizabeth Taylor are going to flock to this one. It's really good. It's so good that I blurbed it. So, oh, okay. There, there it you is. go. That's the real, that's the real test. No, it's just a, it's a fascinating sort of account of a very unique project coming together at a very interesting time in American cinema culture. And its birth was very complicated. And the people involved were uniquely talented and opinionated. And the studio, as were all studios, was in a place of transition. And so was both scared and excited by what the the potential of the project. And it was something that reminded me of how often the process isn't imbued with the kind of intention that this project was. And also, it made me realize too late, I should have talked to Mike about this, or maybe I did, but I don't recall that I did when we recorded that commentary. And what people forget because of the sharpness of the language and the vehemence of the attacks is that it's a love story. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is a love story about two married people. And that kind of gets sometimes like lost in the sort of gunfire of the dialogue. And the book really reminded me of that ultimately. Now, I think when Colson Whitehead, who you read last year, was on this podcast talking about his most recent book, I referred to a movie called The Hot Rock, which was a 1970s heist movie starring Robert Redford as the character John Dortmunder. It was was an amazing pedigree directed by Peter Yates, who directed Bullet. It was written by William Goldman. And this past year, you read a couple of Donald E. Westlake books. He's the author of the Dortmunder books. And I know going back through previous years, you've also read several other Westlake books. Now, whether it's Westlake or Richard Osman, who you have read, or other mystery writers, what role do those books play in your reading life? Well, like most people, there there are times when I really just want to be entertained. But I also want to be entertained by somebody who's just really good at their job. And The Hot Rock was always one of my favorite films. It was, without question, the primary influence on the Oceans 
films. Our goal was to create the the exact atmosphere and sense of humor that was in the hot rock. It's so funny. Oh no, it's, such it's, a funny it's movie. just a great, hilarious film. So as soon as I became a fan of the hot rock, I started, well, who's Donald E. Westlake? And as it turns out lately, which is great for all of us, there has been republished a lot of his work that was out of print for a long time. So almost everything he wrote is now available to read. So when I'm looking, it's another kind of calming thing, the idea that I can reach for is if I'm stressed, I'm like, well, there's always a Donald E. Westlake book that I could dip into to to level set. Because I've got, on my iPad, I think I have them all. Okay. So they're all like in the queue. And I know, okay, I can dive in there whenever I want. Now, this is a technology question because I know, at least on on some of your films, and, and maybe I believe on The Nick, the TV show you worked on with Clive Owen, you're editing day of or night of on your iPad. But it sounds like your iPad is also the place where sometimes you're reading. So how are you... Well, this, accomplishing this all is, these things again, the miracle of technology. Yeah. Like what's what I look around and I look at, you know, my phone, your laptop and an iPad in its current iteration. And I don't say this to scare Apple because believe me, they're scared of me. <laughs> but I mean, how much better can any of these be ultimately? Aren't we reaching a point of diminishing returns in terms of, I mean, I've got the latest iPhone. What else do I need this thing to do, really? You, I've made movies on them. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, what you could launch a rocket into space with the technology that's just in one phone. So if I'm them, I'm going, so how do we convince people that once every year, 18 months, they need a new version of this thing. I mean, can you rely on FOMO forever? Is that a business model? Or I just, how can this get better? How can that laptop get smaller, more powerful with a better screen? Like at a certain point, you're there. And so I'm scared for them. (laughs) This is this opinion is going to move markets. Yeah, exactly. So you're reading on your iPad, you're editing on your iPad. Are you reading when you're on set? No. Okay. No, this is, like I said, this is complete parallel universe, calm space. And I'll do that at the office or wherever. If I know like, oh, I've got half an hour of nothing. I love it. You're just fitting it in where you can. I'll just vaporize for a half an hour and read something and it calms me down. One of the authors that you went really hard on at the end of the year, you read four or five of her works, was Chimamanda Diche. And she's been around for a while. She's been on our top 10 list, many notable lists over the years. What spurred you to read Americana, The Thing Around Your Neck, Notes on Grief, Half of a Yellow Sun, Purple Hibiscus? Well, I'd heard about her. So she was on my list of I've got a... I've just, this just seems too intriguing to ignore, but for whatever reason, I just hadn't gotten there, but I'd been aware of her for a while. 
So I started with Americana. And look, they're just some people that know how to do this. I don't want to denigrate another artist by saying you were born to do that because it implies that there, there's not a lot of work involved. But the bottom line is her understanding of just pure storytelling matched with a prose style that's just as aerodynamic as can be achieved. Like there's not a wasted syllable in any of these works. And there's sentences, there's single sentences that you go, well, you could write a whole book about that sentence. It's just, I, I was completely floored. And so burned through everything that I could get really quickly because it was like a drug. Like it was just great storytelling. And if you're at a dinner party and you're at a table of eight or 10 people and you decide to take over the conversation and tell a story, like you better have a story. Like everybody's looking at you like this story better have a beginning and a middle and an end. You know what I'm saying? Because like, okay, everybody's swiveled and they're like, yeah. And so I'm just saying like, she doesn't have to worry about that. <laughs> like she just understands story at a very deep level. And I, it's just so pleasurable to, to be in that. And it really... It reminds me of why reading, and especially reading novels, is so important to me, for me. And it's because it's the closest thing to being inside of somebody else's consciousness that you can find. Beyond movies, beyond any other art form. Like if you're reading a novel, they... It's, they are building this world for you in a way that's very close to their experience of that world. And, I mean, we know on a technical level from people being in fMRIs while they're reading novels that it lights your brain up in a really unique way. If you're somebody like me who acknowledges the ultimate unknowability of everyone else, this is pretty close to knowing somebody else. One of the purposes of fiction, and, and there, there are many, some people read just to be entertained, some people read to pass the time, but one of the purposes, uh, it's full circle, I think aligns with what Sarah Bake was arguing that Mon Montaigne was trying to do with writing essays, right? And so she argued, and I have a quote here, or a paraphrase, that he was writing about himself to create a mirror in which other people recognize their own humanity, right? So one byproduct of, of reading about the fictional lives of created characters is the same. By seeing this other person, you see yourself. And by seeing yourself, it's, it reflects your own humanity. It makes you understand other people's humanity. It really, the going into the mind thing accomplishes something that, and you've worked in, in many artistic formats that, that other artistic formats just cannot approximate. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's twofold. It's, I feel that too. That's one reaction. And the other is, oh, you feel that? So it's a very sort of intense exchange, or at least I find it to be really intense and, and intensely pleasurable. But yeah, she's just, wow, 
<laughs> All, every sentence of, about her to me starts with, wow. We have a feature here on the Book Review Podcast that I've only done a few times and I really want to do more this year. That's me putting out my intention into the world, which is someone talking at length, which you're not going to do, about the book that they've read most times in their lives. I'm just curious, do you have a book or two that would fall into that category, a book that you've read multiple times over the course of your life that you return to? I do, and ironically, it was given to me by Mike Nichols. Oh, wow. Uh, it's a book called Pictures from an Institution by Randall Jarrell. Randall Jarrell was a poet, fairly well-known, very respected poet and critic post-World War II. And he wrote a single, perfect novel. And Mike gave it to me. I'd never heard of it. Mike gave it to me. And I was like, wow, that's kind of perfect and hilarious. And he said, yeah, I thought so too. Tell us a little about it. It's not a big book. It's not a novella, but it's not like, it's not a doorstop. And it's about a sort of college, small kind of pseudo liberal arts college in the 50s and the people that run it and the people that attend it. And it's very funny and just beautifully observed, beautifully structured and like I said, here was a, it was the only it was the only prose he ever wrote. He was primarily a poet and a critic, Gerald. And I, it's just a masterpiece. And I never get tired. This is the good part of forgetting everything that you've <laughs> ever read. Is every time I read it, I'm like, oh, that line, like I totally forgotten. So that's a winner. I mean, that's a that book's a real winner. And as someone who is as productive as you are, how do you feel about the person who, I don't think this is a straw man example, made one, one great movie or they wrote one book and that book was great? How does it feel as someone who's done as much as you have? Oh, I respect that. My reaction to that is not like, can you do it again? It's more thanks. Like there, there's plenty of stuff out there. So if somebody makes one perfect thing and walks away, I'm like, good on you for knowing like, yeah, that was it. There's something to be said for that was it. I, that's not going to happen with me. But <laughs> Okay, Stephen, you read 80 plus books last year. There's a lot on here. Again, people should go to your site to, to check it out and hopefully they'll get some inspiration. But if you had to recommend one book that you really just want to stump for, which one would it be? Well, it's got to be the Robert Sapolsky book, Determined. This is seismic. This is something that way back when would have been nailed to the door of some institution. It's, it's clear now that we can show our idea of free will, our sense of making up what we're doing moment to moment is not technically true. Now, the implications of this are enormous, especially in the legal system, especially when you're talking about how to punish people. If, any, if at any given moment, any decision you make is essentially determined by everything that has ever happened to you up to that point, everybody you're descended from, the culture that you've lived in, like all that stuff. And in this sense of you deciding in a moment to do something is just not true. How do we punish people? What, is, what does that look like? 
the creative people that I've talked to about this are extremely unhappy. No creative person wants to be told they didn't think of something. And what I've tried to explain or what I believe is, look, knowing this for a fact is really useful. And I think a helpful way to consider how people behave and why the world is the way that it is. But the bottom line is, even if we know this for a fact, it doesn't feel like that. And it never will feel like that. We will never be conscious of the microscopic delay between us feeling like we decided something and then we do it. I'm not depressed by it. I'm not threatened by it. The biggest effect is that it really makes me view how other people behave differently. I have to understand that I have to look at the totality of them, not just what's happening in this immediate interaction. Like I really need to take all of their experience on. And is that something that you think will be useful in your professional life or when it comes to thinking of how characters operate in fiction and movies that you make? Oh, absolutely. I think it makes me want to be even more rigorous about the math of a plot so that people are behaving because there's nothing more frustrating or annoying when you're watching something or reading something and something, some kind of behavior, like it doesn't make sense. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Or that happened because they needed it to happen, not because it was always going to happen. So I think it's another sort of factor to consider when you're building a story out, like you better make sure the math of this is clean. You know what I mean? The people are behaving the way people behave who have this backstory. It feels like it's related maybe to what Hitchcock used to call icebox logic, which is the thing that maybe doesn't really strike you in the moment as you're watching the movie, but later on at night you're opening the refrigerator to get a snack and you say, wait a second, why did that happen in that movie? Or why well, did that character do exactly. that? Exactly. And, and the reason he acknowledges that and didn't care about it is in that moment, like, we're, here's the other reason why, you know, the idea of no free will never become a thing is we are inherently irrational. Like, we're not rational beings. Like, every other species on this planet has some level of rationality to the way they behave. We really don't. And so what Hitchcock is saying is, while you're watching a piece of art, a story that's being told, he was really gifted in knowing where that line was of keeping you in it. And if necessary, bending things to take you further into it and doing something that you bumped on. Like if you watch a Hitchcock movie, which, by the way, the reason that we always that we still watch Hitchcock movies and that they don't feel as dated as some other films is that they're all about guilt. Every Hitchcock movie is about guilt and guilt's not going anywhere. <laughs> so what he found was these multiple expressions of that idea. And when he 
bent the Newtonian world a little bit. He would do it on a sort of physical level, but not on a character level. Like if you watch the characters in a Hitchcock film, they're consistent. Like nobody does something that you go like, he would never do that. She would never do that. Like it's all, like I said, the math is very good, but all built on guilt. God, I feel like we could have an entire podcast just about that. Yeah. Uh, we can't. So whether or not free will brought you into the studio or not, I'm glad you're here. Steven Soderbergh, inveterate reader, sometimes filmmaker. Uh, it's been a delight to have you on the Book Review Podcast. That was fun. Thanks. That was my conversation with director and voracious reader Steven Soderbergh about his 2023 in books. On next week's episode, a couple of book review editors are going to join me to talk about what we're looking forward to reading in the first part of 2024. I'm Gilbert Cruz, editor of the New York Times Book Review. Thanks for listening.